growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. God just presents our heroes in the faith just the way they are, in their imperfections, in their victories, and in in the times when they blow it. One of the favorite genres for Hollywood movie making is action films. And one thing you can count on in an action film is that it's going to have a hero. Thor, Iron Man, Spider-Man, and of course, Superman are just a few of the superheroes that have made their way onto the silver screen. Most of them have been box office success stories, but there is one real life action hero that has accomplished far more than just box office receipts. The Gospel of Mark emphasizes the superhuman power of Jesus. It presents Jesus Christ as God the Son in human flesh. That's why we titled this series, The Real Action Hero. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. We're so glad you've joined us today because we're kicking off a brand new series entitled Jesus, Action Hero. It's going to be an in-depth study of the book of Mark. Of course, each of the gospel writers recorded the life of Jesus. They did it from their own unique perspective and together they provide us with a rich and full picture of our Savior. But as you'll hear Pastor Clay say today, Mark focuses more on the actions of Jesus. You know, the earthly ministry of Jesus only lasted about three and a half years years, but as we'll see as we make our way through the book of Mark, Jesus accomplished a great deal. Now here's Pastor Clay with our new series, Jesus Action Hero. starting a new year. We're off to a new year. So uh, I've, I've said this before, periodically, I like to get up on my soapbox and talk about uh, certain things. And so I'm going to get up on my soapbox for just a minute. Uh, before we get in our message, it's to set, lay kind of a foundation, especially for those of you who perhaps are uh, new to cross-culture. And by the way, we're praying, and I hope that you're joining us in praying that in 2014, so many new faces would be here at cross-culture, that God would draw so many people through us, through us, yeah, through us, that God would draw them. Um, because uh, signage is important, and we need to have that out as much as we can, and, and advertising in different ways. And all, but ultimately, you and me opening our mouth and saying, hey, listen, I've got a great church that I'm a part of. Uh, they embrace me, and they they, they teach the truth of God's word and we worship him there. Would you come and uh, try it out with me? Uh, that's, that's how we grow, folks. It's just exciting and, and talking about. Uh, yesterday, uh, Cindy and I were at Kohl's and uh, I, I usually try to give out an iVite card. Uh, not everywhere I go. It just depends on the situation. But most of the time I try to give out an iVite card. I keep them right here in my wallet. I'm sure y'all keep y'all's uh, close at hand as well. I pulled out my iVite card and I, and I started to hand it. Uh, to the young lady, and I said to her, I said, and I usually say the same thing every time I said, I don't know if you have a church home. I said, but if you don't, we would love for you to come and experience cross-culture church. And she said to me, and I'm telling you, th- this, is, this is sad, and, 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 but it's the truth. She said to me, she said, to me said, oh yes, I have a church home. What's sad about it, not that she has a church home, but that I, I, I rarely get that answer. I rarely get that answer. I'm telling you, there are so many people out there that do not have a place, a family that they can come into and, and connect to and, and sit under God's word and learn. And that's what, but she was so excited. She said, yes. And she was telling me about their New Year's Eve service and how packed it was. And, and you could just tell that she was excited. I was saying, that's, that's what we've got to have. We've got to have excitement about what God is doing. Okay, so let me get up on my virtual soapbox here because I, you know, I want to share with you and I, as I said some of you have heard me say this before and you know this and it's blah 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 but I want to say it again I am a big believer in preaching through books of the Bible 
if you know me or if you've hung around Cross Culture Church for very long, you know that I tend to like to preach through books of the Bible, an entire book in its context. I, I will sometimes deviate from that pattern to do a series such as the one that we just did at, at uh, Christmas. Uh, it's a wonderful life. We might still, we hopefully still work through texts and things like that, but I will occasionally deviate uh, and do sort of a, a topical series. But for the most part, I like to work through books of the Bible. And the reason that I like to do that is because uh, I am of the belief that as you read a book and work through a book in its entirety, that uh, you understand its context better, you understand uh, who it's written to and what's going on and what the circuits were and then how it applies to our life. And I'm of the belief that you come to a better understanding of the author of that book and I'm not referring to the human author. I'm referring to God. That it is in how you get to, that, that you study this book in its context and in its entirety that you come away with a better understanding. One of the reasons, and some of the staff have, have heard this soapbox before, but one of the reasons that I am not a big fan of some of today's modern preaching is that it, it is, in my opinion, way too um, uh, consumer-driven. Uh, it's, it, let's face it, folks, we live in a consumer-driven culture, right? I want what I want, when I want it. Uh, I saw, a, a, I think it was a Time Magazine uh, cover the other day, and, uh, and it was just, and it was called, it was, had this girl on there, and it said, me, 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 me generation. Um, th- that it is that idea that, that it's all about me and giving me what I want, and the consumer wants, in this case, if we're talking about church or, or Bible study or something like that, the consumer wants uh, to know things. For instance, the, uh, the consumer wants to know uh, about uh, sex. Uh, the consumer wants to know about uh, uh, dating, something like that. So, so, so pastors put together series on, on sex and series on, on dating. And uh, by the way, those two do not go together, sex and dating. That's no. But, uh, but it's that kind of idea. Uh, I, I want to know how to get rid of stress in my life. So pastors do a series on relieving stress. And, and on and on we could go. We could talk about uh, uh, dealing with anger and parenting God's way and uh, learning how to, how to forgive. And, and listen, all of those subjects are important, right? All those topics are important. It's not that a pastor should be unaware of the, the, the needs. I, I should, or whoever happens to be preaching across culture, we should uh, understand where our people are, what, what their needs are, what they're not understanding. So we need to do that sort of thing. But I am just of the belief that, that we, we've become so consumer-driven, so consumed with this idea of, of doing a series on this and that and that and the other that, that, we, that we present a misconception. And here's the misconception. The misconception, I believe, and some of you may, and I hope that you can identify with this if, if you feel this way, but this book ends up becoming a how-to manual. And, and, and we need to know how to. We, we need to know uh, what God expects of us and, and what God says about this and what he thinks about that. And uh, Instruction is, is good. We, we need to be instructed, right? I'm not, I'm not, some of you have seen that old acrostic. You've seen that old acrostic for Bible? Y'all ever seen that? Bible, uh, basic instruction before leaving earth. Y'all, y'all, y'all seen that one? 
Yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard that one for years and stuff. And instruction is good. We certainly need to be instructed. We certainly need to know. But here, here's the thing. Here, I'm still up on my soapbox, so, so hang with me here. here. Here's the thing. This book is first and foremost and forever a love story. It's a love letter. It's a love letter written to you and to me. And it is within the context of a love letter that you come to know the author of that letter better. Because it is somehow, because if I, if I write an instruction manual on, on how to uh, take a carburetor apart, <laughs> like I really would know how to do that. Okay, yeah, uh, let's say I got it all right, that's fine. But you don't know anything about me after that. You don't know any, anything about, but a love letter tells you more about me. Cindy and I, a few years ago, we were down at my mom's uh, after my dad passed away, and we were just kind of trying to help her uh, unload a little bit of the mountain of, of documents and paper and stuff that they had stored up for years and years and years and years and years. And in the process of, of deciding what to, they needed to keep and what they didn't need to keep and all that stuff, we came across uh, some letters that my dad had written when he was in college at Florida State. Na, 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 na. Tomorrow night. National championship, baby. Uh, anyway, uh, when he was at Florida State, and, and these letters he, that he wrote to his mom. So they, they weren't letters that he wrote to his girlfriend, but he obviously loved his mom. He had this, you could tell from the letters, he had this relationship with his mom. And, and we read those things, and, uh, and, and we were just blown away. There were things that I learned about my dad that I never knew, because that wasn't how he presented himself to me. And it was in, it was in the context of that letter that I, I learned things about him that I, I, just, I just never even knew. So I'm not saying that we don't need to be instructed. We certainly do. But what I am saying is that you need to understand that this is a love letter. And so I'm of the opinion that reading the letter in its context, reading it in its entirety, brings us to a better understanding of who God is. Ladies and gentlemen, you see, that's what this is about. Some of you have heard me say this a million times. This is not about a religion. Would y'all say that with me out loud? This is not about a religion. This is about, say it, a relationship. A relationship. An instruction manual can give you religious instruction, but a love letter will give you a relationship. So, So please understand that this is what ultimately what this is about. This is about God having this desire for whatever reason he has. God having this desire for you to know him. To know him. Not just know uh, about him, not just know what he wants you to do or not do, but to know him, to walk intimately with him in your life in 2014. Okay, get down off my soapbox. But as a result of my belief, my firm conviction about that, uh, we do walk through books of the Bible a lot here at Cross Culture. And that tends to make for longer series. And, I, and everybody warns me, you know, sometimes that, that can people get burnt out or they get bored or they get whatever. But listen, listen, bonus, bonus. All that stuff you want to know about parenting and, and sexuality and, and dating and marriage and parenting and, and husband and wife stuff and uh, all of that. As you work through the books, as you come to know God better, as this subject matter comes up in the context that it comes up in, you learn about all that stuff anyway. Because this, this is the source anyway. And so you end up, all that stuff you wanted to know, you get that stuff. But more importantly, if you really begin to understand this, you get to know God. And that's what God desires. Okay. Hey, 
My clock's not up today. Y'all are in trouble. <laughs> I heard some groans. Oh, Lord. All right, I got, I've got a watch here. All right, okay. Um, by the way, this is another I'm on old stuff day. This is another old one. You know what it means when a, when a, a preacher takes off his watch and sets it up on the, on the pulpit? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay, so let, let's, let's talk about some background for the book of Mark, because that's where we're going to be uh, for some time now. We're going to be working our way through the book of Mark and exploring uh, what Mark has to teach us about the life of Jesus. Uh, just a, a few details and facts are going to come up as we talk about this. Feel free to write down whatever you want or, or don't want. And sometimes I know it goes kind of fast. If you, ever, if you ever get to the end of something, you think, man, what, what was that? Or what did he say? Or, or how was that? You have, uh, come up and ask me or come up and ask Tyler. He's the one that puts together these slides every week and works so hard on, on all that kind of stuff. And so he, he's happy to, to give you that information as well. The book of Mark is the shortest of the four gospel letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of those, uh, the book of Mark is the shortest. Um, it, was, uh, it is generally agreed that it was written by a man named Mark. The gospel letter itself, by the way, does not identify the author. It doesn't, it doesn't say, hey, I'm Mark and I'm writing this letter. It doesn't say that. But it's almost from the beginning of, uh, of its writing, it was, uh, has been accepted within the context of the church, that the book was written by a man named Mark, uh, also known as John Mark, uh, according to Colossians 4.10, he is the cousin of Barnabas. You know who I'm talking about? The John Mark who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Listen, by the way, side, sidebar, I'm just on a roll today, sidebar, one of the great things about God is that it, even when you blow it, even when you mess up, God never gives up on you. Because if you read that, because if you know the story of John Mark going with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, if you know the story in the book of Acts, John Mark bails out. He bails out. Maybe got too hard. Maybe he missed his girlfriend. Maybe, I don't know, whatever the reason was, but he bailed out and he went back home and it thoroughly ticked Paul off. I mean, it ticked him off so much that Paul would not let him go on the next missionary journey. He said, no, he is not going with me. <laughs> now later, they, 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 they made up. But... Uh, but, but the point is, is that, it's a, listen, we, we're, none of us are perfect. One of the things I love about the scriptures is God just presents our heroes in the faith just the way they are, in their imperfections, in their victories, and in, and in the times when they blow it. By the way, other ancient manuscripts never did that about other religions. They always presented their heroes as purely heroes. One of the evidences that scripture is valid is that it, it, it just says, hey, here, here's David, the adulterer and murderer. Here's Moses, the, the coward. Here's, here's John Mark, the guy that bails out. So it's, it's that uh, John Mark that wrote the book of Mark. Now, obviously Mark was not one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. Some people believe that he was part of the larger group of disciples uh, during the days of Jesus' ministry. Some people do believe that, that there is some evidence that, that John Mark may have been one of those disciples. There's really no way to substantiate that. I would say more than likely, uh, Mark was not an eyewitness to Jesus' life, uh, and he certainly uh, was not an eyewitness to all of Jesus' life. So the question is, where did John get his, um, where did John Mark, where did Mark get his information from then to, to write this text? If he didn't see it, if he wasn't a personal eyewitness, again, it is uh, almost universally agreed that uh, Mark 
uh, got his information, his eyewitness account, from the apostle Peter. Uh, so uh, almost certainly Mark wrote his account of the life of Jesus based on the eyewitness account of Peter. We know from uh, 1 Peter, I think 5.19 or 3.19, uh, we know that Mark was with uh, Peter in Rome just before Peter was put to death. And so it would make sense that the Spirit would lead Mark to write this text, write, this, write Peter's account before Peter was no longer going to be around. Um, one of the things that you'll notice about the, uh, the, the book of Mark, or the theme, if you will, let's put it that way, the theme of Mark is, is simply this. The gospel of Mark emphasizes the superhuman power of Jesus. It presents, him, it presents his divinity in his miracles, that, that it, it, is, it is the substantiation that Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus, uh, the gospel Mark emphasizes the superhuman power of Jesus. It presents Jesus Christ as, as God the Son um, in, in human flesh. That's kind of the theme of the book of Mark. That's why we titled this series, The Real Action Hero. What you discover as we work our way through the book of Mark, what you'll discover is that Mark talks a lot more about what Jesus did than what Jesus taught. That's just his angle. That's just his perspective. One of the things that you'll notice in the text uh, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 times, 40 times in 16 chapters, Mark uses the word immediately. He uses it as a transition, immediately moving from one action event to the next action event in the life of the real action hero. So you'll, you'll pick that up as you walk, work work and walk your way through it. Man, that word, he uses that word immediately a lot. That's what he does. Um, Probably written in Rome somewhere between 62 and 66 AD, or roughly 30 years after Jesus' ministry, after he's gone back uh, to heaven. By the way, most of you aren't interested in this, I know. (laughs) But for those of you that are, there's, uh, there's, always been a lot of back and forth among scholars as to which gospel letter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, which one was written first. Uh, pretty much universally agreed that it was either Matthew or Mark, but there's back and forth. Did Mark, was Mark's uh, gospel letter first? Was Matthew's gospel letter first? And there are people that hold to what's called the Matthean priority. Matthew was written first. There are people that hold to the Markan priority. Mark was written first. And, and the reason they go back and forth over that, again, I know a lot of y'all aren't, y'all tuned me out, but come back here in a minute. Uh, the reason that, uh, that they go back and forth about that is because there, there is a lot of, of identical material. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptic gospels. In those three gospels, there's, there's a lot of similarity. As a matter of fact, 93 to 95% of the book of Mark is covered in the book of Matthew and Luke. Uh, so only about seven, 5 to 7% roughly of the book of Mark is new material. And so because of that, some people uh, believe, well, Matthew wrote first and, and Mark and Luke borrowed from him. And other people say, no, Mark wrote first and Matthew and Luke borrowed from him. I'll just be honest with you. Uh, since all of them wrote on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't really matter to me too much which one wrote it first. Uh, because they each recorded, as God led them, they each recorded the, 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 the angle or the aspect of the life of Christ that God wanted them to record. Okay. All right, uh, we're pretty much done with the background, but let me just say this. What, what we're going to see in chapter 1, 
uh, among other things, is uh, what I see as five declarations. There are five declarations made in Mark chapter 1. We're going to go only going to cover the first declaration uh, today, and then Lord willing, we'll cover the other four declarations uh, next week, and, uh, and that'll do uh, chapter 1. But Mark chapter 1, first declaration we start with today is John's declaration, John the Baptist particularly, John the Baptist's declaration. Here it is, repent, repent. Let me uh, read it for you, uh, and hopefully you're reading along either on the screen or you have your, your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messengers ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist And his diet was locusts and wild honey. Yum. By the way, I just heard uh, Rick Warren, a pastor of Saddleback Church in California, a great pastor, a great author. He's just written a new book uh, called The Daniel Diet. And uh, he's he's lost a significant amount of weight. And he's written a new book called The Daniel Diet. And so I I assume it's based on that. Uh, I'm just waiting for John the Baptist diet to come out and uh, see how many people jump on that one. Verse 7 Uh, John the Baptist, uh, he, and he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, John's uh, declaration, which is pretty simple. Repent. John, uh, if, especially if you were just in the Christmas series with us, you, you may remember this. Uh, John is actually related uh, to Jesus. Uh, John's uh, mother, Elizabeth, was a relative of Jesus' mother, Mary. Probably an aunt, but I don't know if that's, that's quite clear. Um, but they were, they were relatives. They were related to each other. Even before John was, was born, if you're familiar with the story... Uh, the angel Gabriel came to John's father, Zacharias, and told Zacharias that his son, John, was going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. That he would be the one that would go before and prepare the people's hearts to receive the Messiah. So the question is, how did John do that? How did John prepare the people's hearts? He prepared the people's hearts By helping them understand their need for that Messiah that was coming. Notice, you know, pretty succinctly in verse 4, his message is simply this. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Matthew and Luke give us a little more details about uh, that message uh, again, John or Mark cuts to the to the quick, but he says preaching a baptism of for, repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, the Jewish people in which uh, 
John the Baptist was preaching to that were coming out into the wilderness where he was, uh, they were familiar with ceremonial uh, washings or ceremonial baptisms. It was part of their practice. If they, were, if they were ceremonially unclean, they had to go through this ritual. Sometimes the priests had to go through this washing. Uh, but particularly if a non-Jew, a person that was not of Jewish uh, heritage, not of Jewish belief, if, if a, a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they, they looked at it and they said, I, I believe they're right. I believe that you know, there's a bunch of other gods out there and people are worshiping a bunch of other gods, but I believe they've got it right. I believe there's just one God, Jehovah God, and I want to. So if a, if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they had to go through a ceremonial baptism or a ceremonial washing. And it, it pictured, it symbolized the fact that they were, they were making a clean start if you will, pun intended. They were, they were starting out fresh and new. They were washing away their old beliefs and all those gods that they clung to before. They were, they were washing all that stuff away and they were, they were, they were uh, coming to the Jewish God, Jehovah God, and they were committing their lives to him and to only him. That was, that was part of the process. Well, uh, John's uh, baptism of repentance, his message of baptism of repentance is essentially for the same thing. It was to say to the Jewish people that you have to come clean. You have to, you have to, you have to move away from your sins. You have to move away from your sinful lifestyle. You have to move away from whatever else you've been trusting in. And you need to be, you need to know that Messiah is coming. And, and by the way, that's clear in John's message in verses seven and eight. Uh, John the Baptist makes it clear that that while he may be performing a ceremonial baptism with them for their sins, that the one coming after him would truly, would literally wash their sins away. That the Messiah would do that. Now see, uh, and, and a lot of you already know this, but some of you do not. Uh, but one of the things you have to understand is that the Jewish uh, people were looking for a Messiah to come. They'd been looking for him because they knew what the Old Testament prophets said. They knew the promises that Messiah, remember that word means Christ, it means Savior, it means Deliverer. They knew one was coming, but they, through the years and misinterpretation, whatever the reasons were, they had come to think of the Messiah as being a political Messiah. Someone who was going to deliver them from Roman bondage, who happened to be the country that was, the empire that was conquering them at that particular time. So they, when Messiah comes, when Savior comes, he is going to deliver us from, from political bondage, from, from, uh, from national bondage. And what they didn't understand was that, no, no, Messiah was coming for something far more important than political or national bondage. He was coming for sin bondage. He was coming to remove the sin debt that they had. You see, the Jews thought of themselves as God's chosen people, and they were. God, God chose him for a specific task, for a specific uh, uh, encounter with him, for a specific uh, purpose that included the recording of his word and the line through which the Messiah would come. God did have a special relationship, if you will, with the, with the Jewish people. But listen, they were still sinners. They were still separated from God because of their sin. It didn't, it didn't make any difference. They were still sinners and they still needed to be redeemed. They, they, they hadn't gotten that yet. They had, or many of them had missed that fact. They, they thought, well, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm good. You know, I, I keep the Jewish laws. I, 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 I keep God's commands. I try to do the right thing and, and I'm good. And, and the, the fact was they weren't good at all. Not, not by God's standards. I, I remember it's been years ago, but I was visiting a couple in their home one night. And it seems like their grown daughter had been visiting our church. And she asked us 
to go visit or something. I can't remember exactly, but I was visiting with them, and in the course of the evening and the interaction, I was sharing the, the good news of Jesus uh, with, the, with the wife. And I can't remember if the dad was, was over the side watching TV, or if he came in late, or if he just wasn't paying attention. I know it's hard to believe that a, that a man would not pay attention to a conversation, but... Uh, but whatever the reason was, at some point, as I'd been talking to her and presenting to her, at some point I turned to him and I asked him if, if he would mind if I shared with him the good news of Jesus. And, and he looked at me with this kind of this, I don't know how best to describe it, but this, this kind of smart aleck grin. You know what, y'all ever get one of them grins? A smart aleck grin. And he, and he said, no, nah, I'm good. And I started to say, no, sir, you are not good. You are a low-down, hell-bound sinner. Sir, you deserve hell. You're bound for hell. You are separated from God because of your sin. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't, you can't wash it off. You can't clean it up. You can't work it off. The only thing that you can do, sir, is fall on your knees and beg God to forgive you for your arrogance and your pride. I started to say that. But I didn't know how many guns the guy had in the house. And so I, I didn't say that. But you see, folks, here, here's the, this is it. This is, this is John's declaration. It has to start with repentance. It has to start there. Look at this uh, passage of Scripture in Psalm uh, 7. I think it's Psalm 7, verse 11 to 13. What, now listen, this, listen. God is a righteous judge. Y'all know that? God is a righteous judge. It means that, that every judgment that he, that he performs is absolutely right. It's perfect. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, watch this, he, meaning God, notice the capital H, he will sharpen his sword, he has bent his bow and made it ready, he has also prepared for himself deadly weapons, he makes his arrows fiery shafts. Well, I thought God was love. He is. And he is holy, and he is righteous, and he is all of those things. This, this, is, this is serious business. This, uh, I, I love the fact that the book of Mark opens with that idea. Repent. Repent. Uh, Matthew, I said Matthew gives a little more detail. Uh, Matthew, in, this, in the context of talking about John's sermon, Matthew chapter 3, says this. Uh, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, John knew that Jesus was there. He knew Jesus was coming. He knew Jesus, that this was, this was it. Jews, this is your chance. The, the Messiah is coming. You've been waiting for him for hundreds of years. I'm telling you, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was 2,000 years ago, folks. In a very real way, we can still say the same thing today. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right now, is this time. And Matthew went on to say in verse 8 of that same chapter, he said, therefore, I love because he kind of defines it, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you see? You understand? Repentance is not being sorry for what you did. Repentance is being sorry for what you did and not doing it. (laughs) Or striving to not do it. Repentance is not, gosh, I know I shouldn't gossip. I I need to stop doing that. But did you hear about sister so-and-so? She went down. That's not, that's not repentance. Repentance is, man, I... I'm, I'm wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. And I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going in a new direction. Now, we still struggle, right? We still have that flesh. And I'll talk about that in a minute. We still have these issues. But this idea is that repentance is turning. And that's what Matthew's, what really John the Baptist was saying. Bear fruit 
produce in your life something that keeps with repentance. Don't tell me that you've turned your life over to God and then, and then live any way you think you want to live. That's not repentance. I want to make sure you understand that. It's a change of heart, a change of action. I guess, probably, my best friend in college was a guy named Al Stone. And I've talked about Al before. It's been a while, but some of you may remember me talking about Al. Al Stone was the kind of guy that, man, I, I wish, uh, Al Stone was the kind of guy that he could just sneeze and people would give their life to Jesus. I mean, he just, he, it just, it, it, I don't know what it was. It's just, no, it, he just had that. One time, uh, Al told me a story about how uh, he, was, he was working with some guys in his, I think it was in his yard, and they had a backhoe there, and they were digging something out, a pipe or a big rock or something with his backhoe, and uh, he, got, he was up on the, the arm of the backhoe uh, trying to adjust something, and the, and the chain snapped that was pulling this thing the, that they had around on the backhoe, and the chain snapped, and it flew up and, and hit him in the head and knocked him out and, you know, did pretty good amount of damage to his, to his head. And so they rushed him uh, to the hospital, to the emergency room. In the emergency room, uh, they, you know, they decided to sew his head up. They didn't think it was a good idea to leave his head <laughs> open. So they're going to sew his head up. And, uh, but what, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because of where the wound was or whatever the reason was, they couldn't, they couldn't put Al under. Uh, they couldn't give him, you know, full anesthetic, knocked out kind of and they could only give him a local anesthetic to kind of deaden the pain right around it. So which meant that he was awake in the operating room while they're sewing his head up. And uh, Al said that during the course of this, while sewing his head up, the, the doctor uh, commented that, uh, that Al seemed like a pretty calm guy considering the fact that he's probably lucky to be alive and the fact that he's laying uh, on an operating table awake while his head's being sewed up. And Al said to the guy, to the doctor, he said, he said it's, it's not me, it's, it's Jesus. And then in the course of the next few moments, Al just began to share the story of how Jesus had impacted his life. By the way, can I say this to you? That's all evangelism is. We make such a big deal out of this. We make, we think it's, all it is is telling, it's just telling somebody, hey, here's what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Man, you do that and you do that well and they'll, they'll, they'll want to know more. But anyway, Al, Al got to share his story of, of what Jesus had, had done in his life. And, and in a few moments, uh, the doctor says, that's what I need in my life. And Al says, are you serious? He says, I, he says, yes, I am. He said, if you're serious, then I want you to bend down right here in this operating room. I want you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Al said, it's the funniest thing you ever saw. He said, nurses were scrambling everywhere to get out of the room. They didn't know what to do. They were scrambling to get out of the room or whatever. But he said, right there, uh, beside him on the, uh, uh, in the operating room, the, the doctor knelt down and gave his life to Jesus Christ. That, that, that was just Al. That was just, it just... He had, a, he had a million stories like that. Al had this statement that I'll, I'll never forget. And I don't know if he is the one that originated this statement or if he got it somewhere else, but I just always remember Al saying it and I always remember the truth of it. Al used to say this. He said, sometimes you have to get a person lost before you can get them saved. Sometimes you have to get a person lost before you can get them saved. In other words, there has to come a point where a person understands that, you know what, you are not good. You're not. Just like the guy whose house I visited that, that night. You know what? He probably was a good husband. He probably was a good dad. He probably was a good neighbor. But the problem is God has said that good is not good enough. That it takes a perfect sacrifice for your sins. A perfect sacrifice. And uh, let me see. No. Other, other than my wife, nobody in here is perfect. So. <laughs> 
None of us are. None of us are, right? We have to understand that, that, that good is simply not good enough. It just won't do it. Look at uh, this passage in Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to see. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again, watch this, a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, the point of the text, the writer of Hebrews is pointing out, hey, if you know Christ, you need to grow up. You need to grow up in your faith. You need to be maturing in your faith. You need to move on from the elementary things, which again is, by the way, is why I'm always harping on you about getting in this book and studying this book and preaching through this book and all this kind of stuff, because that's what he's saying. He said, you got, you got to grow up. You got to move on you got, from the elementary things. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because what he clearly says is repentance is the foundation. That it starts with that idea. That's why Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. It was his sacrifice that made it possible for us to be redeemed. But you and I have to come to the place where we realize we need redeeming. Wow, that would have been a good place to say amen. Yeah, it's too late now. Don't, don't, wow. No, I'm just, I'm just messing with you. But there has to come this place where we understand that I've got to lead this. Now, look, here's a great passage of Scripture. Look at this. Look at what Peter says. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I love this. The Lord is not slow about his promise. No, no, he's not. He's going he's to fulfill them all, folks. He's not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to, say it, repentance. I'm so glad that verse in there, because there was a long time in my life where I was living my life for myself, doing my life for my thing. Hey, I was a good guy. I was a pretty good husband, pretty good dad, pretty good worker. I'm so glad God was patient with me. All right, as we begin to wind this thing up this morning, uh, let me give you two aspects of repentance. Keep in mind here. When we talk about repentance, let's define it a couple ways. Uh, There is first what what I'm calling foundational repentance. That's that repentance that we read about in Hebrews 6 just a moment ago. That there there has to come this place where I recognize that I'm lost. I'm, I'm separated from God because of my sin. No matter how good or bad I think I am, or in my case, you know, this, this happened many years ago. But there has to come that place where a person recognizes that no matter how good or how great a dad they are or, or, or wife they are or whatever else, that there has to come this place where we understand that I am a sinner. This truth of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I have to recognize that and, 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 and I have to come uh, to trust in Christ and his atonement on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Right? You with me? That that's the only way. That is what I call foundational repentance. That is how I begin a relationship with, with God Almighty, is by uh, falling at, at the altar of the cross and saying, God, only you and you alone can save me. I have no merit. I have no worth. I cannot earn it. I don't deserve it. And, and, and I'm turning away from my sin. I'm turning to you. I'm trusting you as my Savior. And I'm trusting you for my very salvation. That is foundational repentance. And if you're here today, or if you're listening to this today, or you're watching this today, you need to understand, if you cannot in some way think of that point in your life where you came to that point of foundational repentance, where you turned and committed your life to Jesus Christ, then I implore, I beg you to receive Christ as your Savior. Repent of trusting in yourself, trusting in your old way of life, whatever, and turn to Christ. That's foundational repentance. But then there's also what I would call continual repentance. The truth is that this side of heaven, none of us are ever going to be perfect, are we? 
This side of heaven, you and I still live in our flesh, don't we? This stuff, right? And, and if you haven't discovered this yet, let me let you in on a little secret. This stuff, this flesh, this clay is always pulling you away from the spiritual. It's always pulling you away from the things of God. Always. Uh, for example, uh, guys, let's pick on you for a minute. Guys, uh, married guys, husbands, if you're here and you're married, have you, I don't know, ever at some point or some chance or, you know, in your life, have you heard your wife say something like, and I know this is crazy off the top of my head, but have you ever heard your wife say something like, you don't, you don't, ever, you don't ever spend any time with me anymore? You, you don't ever talk with me anymore? We don't, ever, we don't ever go out. We don't ever date like we used to date. You, we don't ever, we don't, we don't, you don't, you act like I'm not even around anymore. I know y'all, probably, that would never, you know, but. Now, uh, right? Husbands? Did, did we intentionally set out to do that? Did, did we say, well, I'm married now. I'm not going to pay attention to her. <laughs> oh, you are dead if you did. So, no. <laughs> No, we didn't, right? Right? We didn't. No, he didn't intentionally set out to I- ignore her. I didn't intentionally set out to ignore my wife when she comes to me and says, "You know." M- by the way, I, most of you know I work. Most of my work is done in my home, up in my office, in my study. It's where I do all my sermon prep and you know praying and ba- all that kind of stuff. And so, oftentimes, my wife says, uh, "Coming down for lunch does not count as time spent with me." I, I. But did we set out to do that? No. But you know what happened? Uh, Too many responsibilities. Too many uh, ball games and recitals to run to. uh, Too many uh, activities. Too many hobbies. Too many uh, television shows. uh, Too too many. uh, Too much work to do. Too many hours at the workplace. And and we could probably add to that too little self-denial. Too much self-absorption, right? It's not that, not that we set out to ignore them. It's just too much of too much stuff. The same thing can be said about our relationship with God. Too little time, too many hours work, uh, too many hobbies, too many ball games and recitals to run to, too many uh, responsibilities, too many television shows, too many... And we could add to... Can, can I get a witness? You understand what I'm saying? Is that in our lives, we can let too much stuff come between us and this relationship with God, which was established in that foundational repentance, right? It's established. Boom. I'm in the family of God. But stuff keeps coming in and, and pulling me away from this intimate, personal... Remember, we talked about that's what this, thing, this whole, whole thing is about. Intimate, personal relationship with God keeps pulling me away. That's why there has to be this... I think there has to be this idea of continual repentance. All right, how do we do that? I, I've, I've been big on... Uh, acrostic or acronyms or whatever they are here lately. So let me give you, let me give you one more. Uh, we have to act on it. We have to act on it. First, we have to be aware of it. Now, this is what, here's what this requires. This requires that every day in your life, you're evaluating where you are in your walk with Jesus. Now, I know that sh- sounds very mechanical and, you're, and you think, well, that's not how a relationship should be. Well, yeah, sometimes it has to be. Because like I said, we don't intend to, to drift off or let this this wedge come in, in this intimacy, but it can happen. And so you need to be aware. You and I need to be evaluating, all right, how much time am I spending in God's word? Uh, when was the last time I talked to God? Uh, how have I uh, shared my faith in him in some way? There's this evaluation. I need to be aware of where I am in my intimacy and in my walk with him. I, I think there has to be 
that idea of being aware of. Second, we need to confess it. Now, obviously, we're not confessing anything to let God in on any secrets. God is God. He, he already knows where we're falling short. He already knows uh, what we've let come in the way. That's not the point of confession. The point of confession is acknowledging that I recognize it, that I recognize that I'm not honoring God with, with my actions, with my time, with my attitude, with my whatever. I'm not uh, regarding this relationship I have with him as the precious thing that it is. I'm, I, I, I let, you know, whatever come, begin to interrupt this, this flow. And I, I, need to, I need to confess that. You say, God, that, that's this idea, that's part of repentance. God, I, I'm sorry. I, I so am sorry. I, I can't even remember when the last time was I, I just sat down and spent 30 minutes with you and your word. And then third, uh, we need to turn away from it. That, remember, it's that idea of, of repentance. It's not just telling God we're sorry. It's telling God we're sorry and moving in a new direction, changing the way we're doing it because we're sick and tired of, of not being the person that, that we can be in Christ Jesus. It is a brand new year. It's 2014. A whole year looks like it's out in front of us. Like I said, I don't know what will happen this year. I don't know who will join us this year. I don't know which one of us may step out into eternity this year. I don't know any of that stuff. But, but, uh, but I know this. I know that God desires for us to draw closer to him, to know him more intimately and more personally. And that it is, it is in that intimacy and in that relationship that we will find everything else that we're looking for in life. Satisfaction and joy and peace and purpose and all those things are found in that. So in 2014, what I'm asking you to, to, to prayerfully consider doing. And not praying whether you should do it, but that, that, that it, this action would occur in your life. That you would... That you would Repent. That you come into a relationship with Christ if you don't know him yet. And that you would be aware of where you are in that relationship. Confess your shortcomings and turn away from it. And walk in newness in your relationship with Jesus Christ. 2014 can be better than any of us can imagine. But we need to heed John's message. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's right now. John the Baptist prepared the way for the coming of the Savior. His ministry was not very long, but it was vitally important because as we heard Pastor Clay say today, John prepared the people's hearts by helping them understand the need for repentance. Often pride and arrogance keep people from admitting their sin and acknowledging their need for a Savior. But without it, a person cannot come to God. And as Pastor Clay also reminded us today, repentance needs to be an ongoing practice of our lives. Even when we come into our relationship with God, we can let things get in the way of our relationship being strong, vibrant, and growing. You and I need to act. We need to be aware of things that aren't right. We need to confess it to God, and we need to turn away from whatever is hindering our walk with Jesus. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place 
Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.